0: Hello and welcome to today's episode, my stunning beans of life, my bean flex, my bean gang. How is everyone? So today's episode is gonna be all about kind of why do we self-destruct and self-destructive behaviors. I'm gonna give an example of you know, the main behaviors. And when I say main behaviors, I'm referring to the community, this community, and also in general, what crops up all the time, um, and I did put up a question box on my Instagram and I was like, what do you think are your most self-destructive behaviors? And there's definitely some current themes there. Um, so I will go into those themes in detail, but I'm also going to explain why in general, I'll give a few reasons why it is that we self-destruct, why we think that, cause you're going to hear a lot about what I have to say and you're going to be like, yes, but why would I do that to myself? Why would I tear myself down or why would I put a block in my own way? So I'm going to break that down and explain why it is that you do that. And there is some kind of logic behind the craziness. Okay. You will see that you have set up patterns consciously or subconsciously, normally subconsciously set up patterns that work for you. And then it kind of becomes hard to break those patterns and unless you are aware of why you're doing the things that you're doing and aware of why you're procrastinating or or putting blocks in your own way or screwing things up for yourself or not rocking up to the thing that you were supposed to rock up to, all that shit – you're going to realise that that all links in to what you've conditioned yourself to be like or who you've conditioned yourself to be like. And unless you make those foundational changes, then all this destruction is probably not going to stop. You can stop it temporarily, but you're not going to get to the bottom of the reason that you do the things that you do, even when you don't want to do them. Okay, amazing. Now, before that, quick weekly update. Look, not much, not much. I'm just feeling like I'm getting a bit more balanced back into my life. There's a lot of planning going on for the future of like what I can bring to my community and the beans. And that's about it. So I'm not going to bore you with any like mundane details of me getting really cool manicure the other day. Oh my God, I said I wouldn't do it, but I got these gorgeous nails with like a baby pink tips, kind of like French manicure, but not at all. Anyway, before we do dive into. The episode of today. I actually wanted to, of course, go into my brain fact for the day, and I wanted to explain motor neuron disease. Not all of them. There's several different kinds um, of motor neuron disease, but I'm just going to kind of explain kind of what's going down when that happens. So, in motor neuron disease, the cells that control your skeletal muscle movement degenerate. degenerate. They become weaker and it's this progressive degeneration. Now they don't know exactly why that happens. About 10% of the cases are genetic and around 90% of the cases are what they call sporadic. Um, So there's no, it's not in the genes, it's not familial, it could be something in the environment. It could be damaged neurons because of a virus that attacked the brain. The virus itself doesn't cause it, but it could be a virus that has caused damage to the neurons and then has caused motor neuron disease. Obviously, motor neuron disease is not contagious. I'm pretty sure everyone knows that. Um, or it could be other factors that are unknown. Like I said, like it's not a clear on- – the onset of it is not well understood. And because it's also not well understood, it's hard to know how long someone actually has motor neuron disease because from diagnosis you've got the the patient normally, 90% of the patients live between two to five years, which is so short and so tragic. There are some cases that live much longer than that. Some have lived 10 or more years, but in 90% of cases, it's not. But that's going off diagnosis. So knowing when it actually began, we don't know that. Okay. So, when you have motor neuron disease, of course it makes it harder to perform movements and this is through your limbs, through your body, but also speaking, breathing, swallowing, etc. Now let's talk about how motor neurons work and then I'll break down different like different kinds of motor neuron diseases. So communication for movement within neurons works on a descending pathway. So you've got ascending pathway, which is sensory information going up to the brain, and then descending pathway, which is kind of commands going down from the brain to your limbs, to your eyes, mouth, you know, to talk, to move, all of that. Now this descending pathway starts in the cortex, which is the outer layer of your brain. It's the primary motor cortex. That's the starting point. And from there down, that is the upper motor neuron we've got upper motor neurons and we've got lower motor neurons this upper motor neuron travels all the way down to the spinal cord where it meets with or synapses onto and a lower motor neuron and from the spinal cord you then have the lower motor neuron that then extends out to all the muscles in your limbs and in torso and that is called the corticospinal tract There's another tract where instead of going to the spinal cord and then from the spinal cord um, synapsing onto the lower motor neuron, it goes down just to the brainstem and the lower motor neuron extends out of the head and neck and that forms the corticobulba tract. So that's for your face, your head, your neck, talking, facial expressions, swallowing, all of that, movements with your tongue, all of that. Now, so you got your upper, which is uh, cortex to either brainstem or spinal cord, and then lower, which is from brainstem out or from spinal cord out. Now, lesions in the upper motor neuron, so cortex down, will have different symptoms to if you have lesions or damage, which is a lesion, I guess, in the lower motor neurons. So if you have a lesion in the upper mo- motor neurons, you're going to get a loss of normal function. And there's gonna be more muscle tone. And I'm gonna go, go into muscle tone the word tone in a second. But you're gonna go you're gonna have more muscle tone. There's there's going to be stiffness of the muscle. It's going to be more contracted in a resting state. And it's also known as spastic paralysis. And then your reflexes are going to be too responsive as well. Now, let's kind of pause and go into this idea of toning or tone or toned up. The word tone has kind of taken a whole new, evolved into this whole new meaning. They've Like the fitness industry has kind of adopted the word tone, toned to be toned. But I, I, I understand now it is an adopted word and it's used so often, but it, it's actually not accurate at all to its true meaning. Tone – in, when you refer to normal muscle tone, you're referring to the right amount of tension at rest, okay? So what, whatever your muscle is doing at rest, that is normal tone, okay? And also how the muscle responds to outside forces like resistance or stretching, okay? So normal tone is kind of your everyday person who has the right amount of tension where you're not like really tensed up and contracted and it's not really flaccid and floppy, okay? So that's when when you refer to normal tone, So when compared to someone with lesions in the upper motor neurons, that tension is increased. There's excessive tone, okay? And if you're talking about something in the lower motor neurons, which I'll go into, that tension is decreased. There's not enough tone. So there's a whole lot of things that contribute to abnormal tone. Obviously, motor neuron disease is one of them, but also strokes are a huge huge factor for abnormal tone. And so you're going to hear people in the fitness industry saying, oh, train here to increase your tone. Um, You know, basically they're saying increase your tension at rest, which is not a fucking vibe. That's not what people are trying to do. So tone in the fitness industry has definitely taken on a whole new meaning, but it is an adopted word and it is not accurate when compared to the actual meaning and definition of tone and what toned means and overly toned is an actual problem within your motor neurons, right? So anyway, I'm not even going to like get all wingy and complain because I'm sure that we, I myself have always like, we've used that word interchangeably when you want to mean like more muscular or more definition where you've got, you know, a lean defined body and you can see the muscles. I think we've all used the word toned interchangeably with that kind of look or physique. Anyway, moving on. Like I briefly mentioned before, if you have lesions in lower motor neurons, you the muscle tone is is reduced. You've got flaccidity; it's floppy. Um, you also get muscle atrophy; it's this wasting away, and you also get twitches as well. Now, motor neuron disease can affect upper, lower, or both upper and lower motor neurons. Okay, ALS is the most common. Form of motor neuron disease and it affects both the upper and lower motor neurons. And ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. What is commonly seen in ALS patients is overactivity and excessive tone in lower limbs and flaccid paralysis and less reflexes in the upper limbs. And then later on, as it progresses, it affects speech and breathing. And one of the main causes for death in ALS is problems with breathing. Now, the onset is really fast, like I said, within two to five years. It's a very fast onset. It's common. Most cases are middle-aged or older. Um, very, it's, it's rare in the, young, in the younger generations and young people. It happens, but rarely. Now, there's many different kinds of motor neuron diseases and I'm mainly just touching on ALS, of course, because that is the most common one. But I mentioned one other one. Keep in mind, there's way more. Um, there's primary lateral, lateral sclerosis. PLS and that only affects the lower motor neurons and this is a slower progression to ALS but because it's got a similar onset and similar symptoms to ALS you actually can't be diagnosed as PLS until after four years because you've got the same symptoms as ALS so they'll probably look at it as if it is ALS and then after the four-year mark the symptoms are very different or obviously the progression is a lot faster on ALS and then that's when you can then be diagnosed with with PLS. Anyway, that is the topic of today. I hope that that was interesting to you guys. I hope you found that interesting about the motor neurons, information about tone and what that really means. Anyway, let's get into the topic of today. So why do we self-sabotage? And what are different forms of self-sabotage? We're going to talk about all that shit. Why do we self-sabotage? We avoid pain or discomfort unless there is a greater drive to override it or completely erase that feeling of discomfort. So our primary goal is to, like just our default setting is to avoid pain or avoid discomfort. That's your default setting. So unless there's something there that's going to override it, you're going to continue to avoid pain or discomfort. And there's people saying, why do I go back to my toxic ex? Go? I'm going to explain all those things, but that is still avoiding pain or discomfort. Going back to your toxic ex is avoiding being alone. It is avoiding dealing with the heartbreak. It's painful, but not as painful as the alternative in that moment. And most of us all the time would rather have short-term gain, long-term pain, we don't look at it that way, but that's what we choose, instead of short-term pain, long-term gain. And that's what you do when you go back to a toxic ex. That's what you do when you procrastinate. That's what you do with most of the times that you do something to self-sabotage. Not all the times. There are other ways that we self-sabotage, which are self-sabotage. Can I talk? Obviously not. Um, And I'm going to go into all of that. If something does not override this pain or discomfort, the urge to do something isn't greater than, or if you can't learn to address what it is that you're doing and work around it, then your urge to avoid pain or discomfort is going to win every single time. And this is where destructive behaviors come in and they become habits, patterns, and they get ingrained into you. And then it gets harder and harder to break. And this is where those destructive behaviors and destructive, like really destructive patterns come in, where it can be years and years if you're doing the same shit where it's not working for you and you're thinking, why can't I change this? Why can't I get out of it? Of course, like I said, even though it is getting, it makes it harder and harder for you to break it, it's never impossible for you to break it. It's never impossible for you to change a habit, change your ways and turn things around so you can be you know, living your best fucking life. That's It's never impossible. So let's talk about what are, what are the main forms that this kind of self-sabotage manifests in. I'm also going to be reading specific quotes, obviously, anonymously, of people that answered in the question box on my Instagram. There's a whole bunch of them and there's a lot of themes. The main one is in relationships. That's a, Well, the main two is procrastination and in sabotaging relationships in the sense of um, when a relationship, when you've got one and it's good, you sabotaging it thinking that it's going to end so you end up doing things to ruin it and also when you meet someone that's good in your mind you sabotage it or you pull this person apart that you think oh no 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 i've got the ick i don't like them whatever that's so common another one is returning to toxic exes another one is pushing people away not just romantically but people in general um not not trying to push yourself further in work even though you think you might be capable of doing that uh not being able to get tasks done that also falls into procrastination your personality not growing how you want always putting yourself down use you crazy need for control that overrides everything um and then of course uh destructive habits like you know wanting to change how you eat and then never getting out of it wanting to change how, how what you do in the morning and then never getting out of it that is the ways self-sabotage manifests in and I'm sure there's other ways as well also we're not going to confuse this with addiction okay I've done a few podcasts talking about addiction that's that's a bit different because we're talking about different like addictions goes on a more intense way of kind of hijacking your your rewards pathway so you can go back and listen to that this is this is just destructive um things that you do within your life that is not an addiction okay so what I'm now going to do is break it up into a couple of categories there's going to be financial um, eating. And in eating, it's kind of overall health, like patterns that you can get into that are going to benefit you overall and why it is that you sabotage it. Um, I'm going to go into, of course, relationships. That's the main one. And then other. And there's a whole bunch of things that, that'll fall into the other category. So we'll start with relationships. This is this is the main things that that came up. In relationships, I start fights and I tell him he's too good for me or that he deserves better. Another one is, I think that my partners don't love me, so I go, I go over it in my head again and again that they want to get rid of me. Another one is doubting myself when I get into a relationship that I'm just not good enough or that I'm not worthy of a relationship. Always going back to my narcissistic ex. I feel like I'm never someone's first choice. I assume that people always think the worst of me in relationships and in friendships. I never take responsibility for when I do something and then I blame others for their actions and then drive them away. I never put myself out there to meet someone new because I think that the outcome is going to be bad. I'm always checking up on my ex's social media. Uh, retroactive jealousy in general. I'll go into that in a sec. Um, finding flaws in people and getting the ick and then dismissing them altogether, even when I think that there might have been you know, an initial bond or I really liked them at the beginning and then all of a sudden I'm picking at all these things that make me grossed out by them so I can dismiss them out of my life. And then the last one, which is so common, getting bored when I finally find a nice guy. This was very, very common, this one. And this stems from, I just want to dive into this one a little bit deeper. This stems from people's opinion of what a relationship should be. A relationship should be exciting when you create the excitement together. It is not up to your partner to turn your life into an emotional roller coaster for you to feel butterflies. That is toxic. And if you're drawn to these roller coaster relationships and butterflies and kind of treat me mean so you can keep me keen, if you're drawn to that kind of toxicity within a relationship, it's because you interpret highs and lows as passion instead of what it is, which is toxic. And then you interpret the opposite, someone who's calm and grounded as being boring. You are bored because you have to sit with your thoughts and your reality. It's not about the partner being boring. You're bored because you're not happy with some other aspect of your reality. It's seldom the nice guy who's making you feel bored. You're bored because that person's not creating enough drama in your life for you to focus on and feel that this highs and lows is this passion, when in reality it's just toxicity. And so when you meet someone that's chilled and grounded, you interpret them as being boring. You think, uh uh uh, this is not pleasant. You're not distracting me enough from my dissatisfaction towards other things in life. I want you to be the, the fire in my life. I want you to be the excitement in my life. If you were excited about your life and you had shit going on that made you happy and you were doing things for yourself that made you happy, you would be pleased. In fact, you'd be thrilled to meet someone calm and grounded. You would not seek out the roller coaster within your relationship that is where that comes from, okay? So, if you get bored because you've met someone nice, that is the reason. Now, when you check up on your ex's social media, it's because you think it gives you control. One of the main reasons for destructive behaviors is a need for control. And this goes back to what I said, it's the avoidance of pain or discomfort. Control makes you feel like you can avoid pain or discomfort. So, when you look at someone's Um, social media, it's often to find evidence to make you feel better. You want to be in control of the situation to help you feel better. You might want to see that this person maybe misses you. Maybe you're looking for evidence that they're posting a song or that they're not really going out. Or if they are going out, who are they with? What are they doing? Trying to analyse every situation so you feel more in control. Okay, You're going to see, you're going to notice a pattern that a lot of the behaviours that you do is to gain control. And control equals um, an avoidance of pain or discomfort. If you are in a position where you're telling your partner, that you, they're too good for you and that they're going to leave you or similarly if you're always starting fights with your partner and trying to push them away so they can prove that they do in fact love you that is boy, well, it stems from a lot of things but one of the things is this self-fulfilling prophecy okay you you are right either way you win either way you're in a position where if they constantly keep proving time and time again that they do in fact love you, then you can say, oh, well, you know, at least I'm staying in this relationship and I'm, and, and at least I'm not abandoned and I am protected, despite the fact that you're feeling all these feelings and you're thinking all these thoughts. But separate to that, You also win if they leave you because deep down you think I was right. I was right and I knew it. You didn't shock me. You didn't surprise me. I was in control. I knew you were going to leave me and you proved me right. This comes down to that internal working model that I've spoken about many times that's based around attachment theory. This idea that you're used to something as being a standard. If you have secure attachment, you're used to the idea that people – good in general, you can rely on people, it's okay to be vulnerable because if something breaks down you'll be sad but you'll get over it and you can move on because ultimately you are loved in general but if you've got some sort of an insecure attachment or a disorganized attachment you're gonna see people are not reliable, I might not be loved or I might not be able to rely on people And so then when you enter relationships, you're kind of trying to prove that belief system that you hold, this internal working model. You're trying to prove it. So you're saying, you don't actually love me. I'm trying to push you away. Have you cheated on me? I want to check your phone. I want to do this. I want to do that. I'm pushing you away. I'm pushing you away. You're too good for me. You're this, you're that. If they then leave you, you say, oh, so you think that you're too good for me. Oh, then fuck off. Oh, so, you know, you really didn't want to work through the relationship or this idea of if you can't handle me at my worst, then you can't have me at my best. Fuck off. Those statements piss me off. Those statements of if you can't handle me at my worst, you can't have me at my best are so toxic and so manipulative. It's beyond comprehension. No cunt. You need to learn to bring your best self forward in relationships. And if someone can't handle you at your worst, maybe you need to ask yourself why they can't handle you at their worst. Either you're not a good match and they can't support you for whatever reason, or maybe you're toxic. Maybe. Okay? So you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're in a situation where you're saying that and believing it, you need to think, wait a minute, is my worst something that I myself wouldn't want to put up with? Is my worst fair? Because if your worst is you just having a meltdown about about something personal, then that's fine. That's fine for a partner to be there, work through it with you. But if your worst is being toxic or, or, um, or projecting shit that happened in your past relationships to your new partner, that is not fair and they shouldn't put up with it. And then don't think, oh, you missed out because they didn't. They're just stepping away from a relationship that was not working for them, that they probably deemed toxic. It doesn't make you a bad person and it doesn't make them a bad person, but it means that the relationship was exposed to things that were were not conducive to a healthy relationship. End of story. Okay, So please, if you're somebody that uses that line, go ahead and use it if you want, but you're not doing yourself any favours. You're actually doing yourself a bigger disservice than you are doing to your partner or your friends or your family or anyone that uses that statement. Now another one, when you assume that people think the worst of you, this again comes down to it's a protective mechanism. If you're assuming the worst, then you're preparing yourself for the worst case scenario And then you are distancing yourself from these people. So while that's painful and definitely not productive and you're not getting these great connections with people, you're also protecting yourself from rejection, from abandonment. You're protecting yourself from being vulnerable. So you can start to see that all these destructive behaviours, especially within relationships, circle around either a need to protect yourself or your internal working model based on whatever your attachment theory is. I've got a whole podcast on attachment theory. You can pause this and go listen to that if you haven't yet already. And it also is based around this avoidance of pain or discomfort. You're avoiding vulnerability and vulnerability represents intense love, but it also represents pain and rejection and discomfort. Okay, And all of that, getting comfortable with with being exposed to potential pain but also potential gain has got to do with your relationship with yourself and self-love. If you don't feel good about yourself, trying to seek those feelings in, with, in other people is terrifying, terrifying. Because if you don't feel good about yourself, And then you think, okay, I need to put myself out there to feel good, but I can't, I can't because if that person then rejects me, then I'm going to feel even worse about myself. I don't return to baseline, I feel even shitter because I haven't created the proper baseline level of self-love or self-worth for myself initially. For me to be able to put myself out there, get rejected and then return back to my baseline, which is pretty good. That's where it stems from. So a lot of these self-destructive behaviors within relationships are based around your relationship with yourself and not feeling either good enough or not feeling that you yourself can love yourself. Now, like I brushed over before with the um, returning to a toxic ex, again, again, that goes back to this internal working model. It goes back to what your belief system is around, what you're worthy of receiving for love. If you are in a toxic relationship and you leave and you haven't yet identified that this person's probably a narcissist or has been abusive emotionally or physically or whatever, you are then going to, if you're not fully aware of that and you can step away from that and be like, whoa, I didn't really know this person. They were a gaslighter. They were this, they were that. If you're still in that bubble – And you think, well, yes, it was horrible and yes, they didn't treat me well, but they loved me and – I would much rather be with someone that loves me in their own weird fucked up way than being alone because again, you don't have a strong relationship with yourself, then you're going to return back to them. It is self-destructive, but it is a protective mechanism. You feel in the moment that you are protecting yourself. You are avoiding the pain of sitting with your own thoughts, sitting with the thoughts that are in your head about yourself. If you don't feel valuable as a human being, you would rather be with someone who's top. Which is very sad. And I really hope that if you find yourself really resonating with this, that you're willing to start really working on yourself. I've got so many episodes on self-love. Please go and listen to that because it is, you owe it to yourself to do this for yourself. Because all these ways of protecting yourself are only hurting you more and more and more in the long term and putting off you being able to actually enjoy your life. You know, you want to milk your life instead of wasting time with spineless lemons. Now, the last thing in the relationship kind of category that I want to talk about very quickly is this idea of retroactive jealousy in general. Retroactive jealousy, I go in depth with this in my jealousy podcast. It's one of my first episodes that ever came out, like it's in single digits. Um, And it is this idea where you are jealous of somebody's past so whether you you say you're dating somebody you're not jealous of their current behaviors or what they're doing now or people in their life now but you're jealous of their ex or you're jealous of a lifestyle that they used to have and 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 it really affects your day-to-day and you need reassurance about that constantly that again comes down to your need for control you're trying to control a situation that you cannot control and you're trying to control a situation that you don't own and you don't have access to whatsoever it's not yours to control Um, but again it's it's raising insecurities within you that's what retroactive jealousy is it's just it's it's a marker in your awareness that raises an insecurity about yourself it comes down to how you feel about you so something that someone did in their past or someone dated in their past is a trigger to you about how you feel about you when you turn your life around and mind you you can turn your life around in a very short time it is incredible what you can do in a 6 month or a 12 month time frame with your relationship with yourself and how you feel towards yourself and your abilities and what you can achieve in your lifetime, if you do that and you put in the work, you're never going to feel retroactively jealous. You're never going to feel not good enough in a relationship. You're going to feel that you have what it takes to be vulnerable and if it breaks down, you have what it takes to pick yourself up and be greater than where you were prior to the relationship. That's what you will achieve if you do the work on yourself. This episode will help you, but also all my other self-love ones are targeted around that. Okay, now let's go into another topic. Let's go into eating. Well, eating and health and all of that. As soon as I see results, I reward myself with food and booze. This kind of circles around what I was talking with Arabella, this idea of needing to reward yourself. You kind of want to take away that concept and that language altogether. You shouldn't feel that you have to um, restrain and restrict, 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 reward, restrict, 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 reward, especially when it comes to eating, okay? Because eating is something that you're going to do regardless. You want to change your relationship towards your food, your exercise, and that all comes down to what you attach as a result from eating and from exercising. A lot of the time, it's very heavily based around image and an image that you think you should look like and it's all superficial. It's not about trying to achieve a feeling that makes you feel good. If you can change your goals around your eating and and your training – to be based around, I'm raising my standards for how I want to treat myself. I'm raising my standards for how I want to feel. I exercise to feel calm. I exercise to feel elated in the mornings. Once I finish training, I know I feel like I've got more energy. Your weight loss, all of that comes as a positive, great side effect of the main purpose of why you are training it's this idea of working towards a goal instead of running away from a goal you're running away from this body that you don't like instead of I'm running towards a feeling that I do love if you do that then if you want to have a meal that isn't really in line with whatever then it's fine you don't attach too much failure quote unquote to it because you think well I'm really happy with where I'm headed. I'm doing things that make me feel good every day. This meal right now is going to make me feel good. I'm going to fucking eat this meal next. Tomorrow, I'm going to feel great if I train. You know, everything is then centered around feeling good. Instead of thinking I've been feeling shit because I'm starving myself and I'm forcing myself to train in a style that I don't enjoy training. Pain, 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 pain. Now I need to relieve myself from all that discomfort here we go, food. Again, it's about avoiding discomfort and avoiding pain. If your lifestyle is set in a way where it's so uncomfortable and so painful, then you need that quote-unquote treat or reward because you've put up with so much discomfort. You need to change how you approach your training and your eating. It should not be for superficial reasons. Another one is drinking when I have a deadline. That was randomly common. I had a few people saying, or like day drinking when I've got something big on the next day, like, you know, kind of, it's, it's distraction. Drinking, and I, I, I fucking drink, love it, Love a good fucking Negroni, get me. And I'm actually going to have a Negroni after this. Good times, good times. But drinking to avoid stress is what's going to happen when you've got a big deadline or where you've got something coming up. Again, you're in this position of discomfort, so, you think, let's just relax. Let's just have a drink. I've got this deadline, but I need to calm down. So, you come up with all these excuses. So, you think, I'm going to um, pacify myself with a drink just to relax. I'm going to, you do all these things so you aren't focusing so heavily, heavily on the deadline or how stressful tomorrow is going to be. And that's why you drink. It's short term gain. You feel good in that moment because you want to avoid the opposite feeling, which could be stress, anxiety towards a situation that's. That's looming very, very soon. And then another one, the last one for eating that was really common is I go fully off the bandwagon when I lose one kilo or when I, when I see that I've lost some weight, whatever. You're telling yourself that it's really, really hard to do what you're doing and you're believing it. You're saying, oh my God, this is not me. This is not me. I'm really just doing something that's so out of the ordinary for me and I'm finding it really, really difficult that when I see that I've lost some weight, I think, oh, thank God I can now treat myself. If you are telling yourself that what you're doing is so difficult and so out of the the ordinary for you, then it's going to feel fucking difficult and you're never going to fully accept it into your life. You're never going to fully accept this new lifestyle until you raise your standards for what you believe is necessary for your life for you to feel fulfilled and happy and feel like you're growing every day and achieving things until you can fully raise your standards and say, you know what? I am somebody that will train every day. That's me. And it's not that hard. I can do it. Some days I'm going to do a little bit less. Some days I'm going to do more, but every day I'm going to do something towards it because I've now embodied that about myself. If you're somebody that thinks I have a wedding in six weeks time, so I'm going to fuck myself every day and just destroy myself and feel like I'm dying so I can fit into this dress so I can look a certain way and so people can think that I look good and then I feel validated based on that. So I'm going to do this for the next six weeks. I'm going to suffer so I can get people to make me feel validated. That, then when the event happens, you think, oh, well, that's done. Phew. Let's go back to my old life because this is really uncomfortable. This does not feel good. It does not feel fun. I'm not enjoying myself. It's discomfort. So I'm now going to avoid again, again, what I'm talking about, avoiding discomfort and return back to my old ways. Stop looking at this lifestyle change as something that's so painful and so difficult. And in order to do that, what I recommend always is you start to make incremental changes in your life. I'm all for, for one day to the next changing your life if you like it. But if you don't like it, you're setting yourself up to fail. So that's why you start implementing these habits, these daily rituals and habits where you start making little changes every single day. If you're someone that never exercises, you start doing a 20-minute walk every single day without fail. You start waking up at the same time every single day. And I've got podcasts on that. I, want, I don't want to repeat myself too much. But it's this idea that you – um, who's uh, Tony Robbins says this, and it's really good. You you overestimate what you can achieve in a month, but you underestimate what you can achieve in a year. He's, I don't want to bastardize it, but he says something like that, and it's very true. It's this idea that you put in so much pressure and you make your life so unbearable because you think I have to do this, and then when you don't do it, or when you do achieve it, but it's impossible to keep it up, you then let it all go, and then you think, wow, I'm actually a failure. When in reality, you just put way too much on your plate way too quickly. All these things that you want can be had but you need to do it incrementally until it becomes part of you, part of your lifestyle where you've raised your standard to get to a point where if you didn't do it, you'd feel weird. Now let's go into financial. These are the the main three that cropped up. Spending money that I don't have, having savings and then blowing it all. When I've reached a certain point, I blow it all. And then comparing myself to others financially. This comes down to your belief of what you're capable of achieving. If you think that, Saving money is doable. That you're going to reach this goal. That it's 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 achievable for you. Then it's more likely that you're going to stick to your guns and keep saving, and you're going to not blow everything, or you're going to have some sort of a budget where yes, you can spend, but ultimately you're you're adding every single week or month you are adding to that savings account, okay? Because you believe that that is what you are worthy of. If you think. I'm just never someone that's going to make money. I'm never really going to achieve more than the income that I have now. And saving for you is just such a painful exercise because it means that you're not enjoying your life you're not getting those little, you know, fun, you know, you don't get to travel here, you don't get to have that nice dinner here, then you think, fuck this, this is so uncomfortable, I'm just going to spend my money because what's the point of living so tightly within my means if I'm never enjoying myself and that's where you then kind of blow it because in your head you're thinking that those means that I'm living by are never going to get better. I don't have the the resources or the capabilities to expand on those means, my income is not going to increase, so why bother? That's the mentality, the why bother mentality. And that's why you end up spending money that you don't have because you think, well, I'm not really, this situation's not really going to change. So just fucking live your best life. I'll just enjoy in the moment. It's this idea of you're living as if today's the only day, which that's, that's a good way to live when you're wanting to, you know, experience life and enjoy yourself. But when you're looking at it financially, you want to have one eye in the future and one eye on the present moment. You might even find, even looking back on your life, that in the times where you have made more money, proportionately, you're able to save more because you've got a higher opinion of what you're capable of earning or what you're capable of achieving. So you think, I'm making this money. I'm getting excited about it. I'm willing to put this aside because I've got these big goals that I want to save for. Those big goals to save for are more achievable in your head. You're thinking, it's not a far-fetched goal. It's possible. So you end up, Proportionate to your income, saving more when you're earning a little bit more because it's achievable to you. This all comes down to what you believe you can do based on your resources, based on your ability, and based on your opinion of yourself and your value, the value that you've placed on yourself. If someone was to hold a crystal ball and say to you, "You you're never going to change your financial income, you're never going to ever save enough for a home, for a home deposit, for a car, then why would you bother, right? but you're doing that to yourself right now. You're already setting this crystal ball saying it's never going to actually happen. So why try? And that's why you do it. That's why you do these, these financial, um, sabotage, self-sabotage things. Now the last category that I want to go into is other, because there was a few different ones here. Procrastination is the last one I'm going to talk about, but procrastination kind of covers a whole, that kind of seeps into a lot of what I was talking about, but let's go through some of them. Thinking I'll be bad at something I've never tried, so I talk myself out of giving it a go. You're probably going to be bad at something that you've never tried. That's the reality of it. But this comes down to you not feeling confident or not willing to accept what failure or defeat would feel like because, like I said before, your baseline is already set pretty low. If you think, fuck it, you know what, I'm just doing it for fun, I'm not doing it because I'm I'm placing my my value on the outcome of this thing that I'm going to try. Then you're more likely to do it because you think, I'm I'm not going to attach myself to the outcome, I'm going to do it. If you're really happy with who you are and you're happy with yourself and you're happy with your life, you're more likely to explore things and try things and give it a go even if it fails. I don't want you to set out thinking, you know what, it's going to fucking fail but I'm just going to try and not. No, but I want you to set out thinking… I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I've never tried it. So it could be a fucking disaster or I could have winner's luck. Let's give it a go. This idea of not trying something because it's not going to go well is kind of counterintuitive because the chances of something not being great when you've never done it are high. That's why people that are good at something have done it for a long time. They've had to do it for a long time to get good at it, okay? most things in life that are worth having take time and practice. And in order to get to where you want to be, you have to invest some time and practice. So that mentality, it's got nothing to do with your ability. It's got to do with your fear of failure. That's it. It's got to do with your fear of not being good enough because you already feel not good enough. So you don't want another slap in the face. You're like, I'm done with feeling shit. Why the fuck would I put myself out in that arena to feel shit I'm not going to bother. So every time you hold back from trying something new, you need to pause, put that on ice and think, whoa, let's look about what I'm feeling about myself right now without that even happening. Even if that never happened, let's look at what I'm thinking about my own capabilities right now. And if something failed, how would I feel about myself? Would I be like, oh, lol, that didn't work out? Or would I be like, I'm a failure? I am a failure. Why did I try? I knew I was scum. I knew I didn't. What's your language around things when you try and fail? And that, once you understand that, then you approach things differently. Then you can think, okay, I know that my language is normally quite negative, but I need to counteract that negative language by looking at all these examples around me of people that are good at what I want to try doing and just imagine what they would have been like when they started. Because in 99.9% of cases, they were probably average at best. Another one is putting myself down when I get a compliment. This idea, if I think a lot of people are like, okay, I'm ready to start this self-love journey. I'm ready to say good things about me. And then someone compliments you and you're like, oh no, 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 it's just, um, it's just I've got really good makeup on. I don't actually, or, oh no, I could have never done this makeup. Someone else did my makeup or, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not looking good. I feel, I feel really frumpy. Oh, I hate, I hate what I'm wearing today. When someone's just given you a compliment, this again, again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but this comes down to your internal working model. It's when someone gives you a compliment, if you don't feel good about yourself, your default is for people not to compliment you or for people to just be neutral. So when someone gives you a compliment, you're not prepared. You're not prepared because you probably haven't been too kind to yourself either. So instead of accepting it, that feels quite uncomfortable. So you avoid that awkward feeling of of agreeing with someone when you don't truly agree. So you shut them down. You shut them down, and then you also feel a lot of the time people put themselves down as a protective mechanism because they because you think this person's e- either I feel really comfortable that they're, really uncomfortable that they've said this to me, so I'm going to quickly shut it down because I'm awkward, or you feel they're just pretending to be nice, but I know that they think I don't look good, so I'm just going to let them know that I know that I also don't look good, or I know that I'm not really good at that what that person just complimented me on. And then the last one before I quickly touch on procrastination is canceling plans even though I know I'll regret it. You'll regret it because of hindsight, but in the situation that you're in, you're you're probably canceling the plan because it something about that plan represents discomfort. You're thinking, "Either I'm not going to have anyone to talk to there." Or I don't really like that group of people so if what if I want to leave? I'm going to feel really awkward or I don't know how to leave an event early and I feel really uncomfortable. It could be a, a whole array of things. I don't know what to wear. I'm going to feel shit. Uh, there's certain things about my appearance or whatever that, that I'm just not in the mood to go. I feel down about myself. All these reasons. You're feeling all these things. You only regret it until after it's happened. You saw that people had a good time and you think in hindsight, you think, oh, I could have been there having fun. Why didn't I? Without getting back into the mind frame that you were in prior, thinking there was actually no chance that I would have gone to that event. So you've got to, you've got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of your original self and think, why did I say no? Then, separate to that, then you have to address why you said no. And, and it could come down to social anxiety That's a big one. And if you have actual social anxiety, there's many reasons why you're going to say no to an event because you feel trapped. That's a big one. You feel like you can't get out of it. You don't know how things are going to go down. So you'd rather have the control and not go. Or it could be something that's not as intense as, you know, clinical social anxiety, but it's kind of bordering on that with this idea that you're preempting the worst case scenario. So you don't want to weigh up your chances so you'd just rather not and you don't go. You always have to enter a situation thinking, I can't predict the future, I don't know how it's going to go, I'm not going to hype it up to be this amazing thing in case it's not, but I'm also not going to hype it up to be this horrible thing in case it's not. You're, you have to adopt a mentality and learn to adopt a mentality thinking, regardless of the outcome, I'm going to be fine regardless of the outcome, I can leave whenever I want. I can even create a scapegoat for myself. So when I get there, like you can have these protective factors put into place to help you start to become more social and put yourself out there. You can think I'm gonna go for one hour or 30 minutes And I'm going to even have an excuse up my sleeve so I feel comfortable with this ready-to-go excuse that I can leave. I can even, as a protective factor, to save myself from sitting at home and not going at all, I can even go and say, look, I'm so happy that I'm here. I actually have to go to somewhere else in an hour. And that way, if then you're having the best time, you can then say, you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm not going to go to that other thing. I'm having such a good time. But it's really good. And this is what they do in cognitive behaviour therapy. They get people to create these protective kind of things to take with them, whether it's phrases or somebody else or whatever to events to to deal with social anxiety. So they feel like they have, you know, more control in a situation where they truly feel like they're not in control. But that's a whole nother ballgame. Now I'm getting into social anxiety. Now, the last one is procrastination. You've probably figured it out by now what I'm going to talk about. Procrastination is an avoidance of something you don't want to do even though you're going to have to do it later. But you wait till a till moment where it's so crucial that you actually end up, like, like it's, it's a deadline, whether it's a uni deadline or whether it's whatever, whatever it is that you're procrastinating, you wait to a point where you have no choice. And when you have no choice, it's so much easier to do it because you're not umming and ahhing, should I start now, should I start? You don't have a fucking choice. It actually becomes so much easier when you end up having to do the task when you have no choice. Stressful, maybe, but easier, yes. That's why deadlines are really good because for people that procrastinate all the time, the deadline forces you to actually do it in the end. It's probably not done as well depending how far you've procrastinated it. But procrastination becomes an an actual major issue When you're procrastinating on something that doesn't have a deadline, that's when it really kind of blocks you in your life from experiencing things and achieving things. Like say you want to, you know, start your own business or say you want to – Set yourself up so you can travel overseas or you want to move to a different city. If you're procrastinating on all the action points that need to happen in order for you to get there and there's no deadline because this is just your own dream or your own goal, then it's going to really get in your way and that's an opportunity for you that might never happen because you're looking at all these steps that need to happen as risky, as putting yourself out on a limb, as – representing potential loss of something loss of finances loss of you know a lifestyle that you may be enjoyed you're not going to take action if the life that you're living right now is comfortable enough it doesn't have to even be pleasant it's just got to be comfortable enough because again for the millionth time you're just avoiding discomfort so if you're living a life that you don't love that's not really exciting and you dream of a better life but that dream is a risk and that life equals more work that means that there is a lot of discomfort involved in your dream and if you don't have something that's going to drive you there strong enough if the driving force isn't big enough then you're going to pick the alternative which is your current life or, or the default which is your current life That's why for a lot of people, something major happens in their life before they shake it up because it's this idea where they didn't really have a choice, but they got pushed into it. Like when I did that big trip overseas initially, now, you know, there's been, well, not now, but there's been times since that I've been able to just get up and go and go overseas and I've been fine. But the initial catalyst was heartbreak. I just wasn't feeling good. I was just desperate for change. Desperate being the key word. And so I made, I took action. I made a change. Okay, but you don't have to wait for something major to happen in order for you to take action. It's got to do with, you've got to look at yourself right now and look at your circumstances and say, I am procrastinating on this right now because I'm choosing my comfort levels now over the potential gain of that. So what you need to do is you've got to look at the potential gains, make it more realistic for yourself by maybe, and I've got one of, of taking action. A few weeks ago, I did an episode of taking like decisive action and stuff, and that's going to help you. But it's basically putting into place things that are irreversible. So you make, it feels real. It feels realistic and you're more likely to take action on it. You then feel if you've invested into the future, your current reality now becomes more uncomfortable than the new reality because you think, wait, 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 I've invested time, money, resources into this future thing happening. If I stay here and it doesn't work, I'm going to feel like I've lost out on that stuff. So it's really good to book that ticket, to invest in that course now, buy it, pay for it, do it you know, because then you're more likely to take action. The driving force has to be greater than the representation of discomfort every time you look at any situation and you're less likely to procrastinate on that situation. So to wrap up today's episode, I just wanted to go over the key reasons why it is that you would self-sabotage. So I want you to try your very best to identify and start doing the work because you're fucking worth it and things aren't going to change unless you change them. Okay, so they are... You're using this self-sabotage as a protective mechanism. You're basing things off your internal working model. If you're not sure what that is, go check out my podcast on attachment theory. And, and with that internal working model, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you're always telling yourself that something's not going to be good so that at least, at the very least, you can prove that you are right, even though you're not happy. Um, one is that your identity is tied to the wrong thing. So maybe you're focusing too much on, you know, being somebody that, you know, again, based around this fucking internal working model of what you perceive to be your reality. If you think that your reality is something financially or what you look like or how you feel or what you're capable of achieving, if you tie your identity too heavily to that, it's going to be really hard for you to then all of a sudden make a change. You're going to cock block yourself from these changes. Another one is needing to be saved to determine or to assert that you're loved or to feel loved. Another one is fear of vulnerability and the unknown. Again, that's, you know, avoidance of discomfort. And then the last one is an intense need for control. All of those things, like I said at the beginning, base around avoidance of fear or discomfort. So whichever category you slot into, know what the stem of that is. Guys, I hope that that was helpful and more importantly, I hope that that planted a seed or was like a little ping for you to be like, I've experienced that or I've thought that and why? And start to ask yourself questions. It's always good to look back into your past, never to blame, but to identify, especially to identify a pattern. If you identify a pattern, then you can think, okay, this, is, this right here is where I'm self-sabotaging myself. This right here is where I can start working on making a change. It's never helpful to look back into the past to dig deep and think you wronged me, that person's fucked, my parents did this to me. The, the past is the past, it's done. It can only serve you to identify patterns and to learn from it to move forward. So hopefully this episode served you in that way. I love you guys so much. As always, a huge thank you. Massive thank you for supporting the podcast, for supporting me, for sharing the podcast. Guys, your word of mouth has been the what's helped the podcast grow the way it has. The listeners in the US are growing so much. So hello. There's people in in hello to the to the listeners in Philadelphia and Portland. I'm just looking at the list of where, where the downloads are coming from. Chicago, how sick, and Germany. How random and I love that so much. Hello to my listeners in Germany. So honestly, what a fucking vibe. We're going global. The beans are global. I love this so much. I love you guys all so much. I'm going to start saying hello to people from different parts of the world where I'm seeing downloads. Yes, maybe we can turn this into like we do a global tour. Imagine, imagine the good times. Anyway, love you guys so much. Remember, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.